this episode of 92Y Talks, Heidi Schreck, the whip-smart playwright and star of the Broadway hit, What the Constitution Means to Me, sits down with Harvard Law professor Lawrence Tribe and award-winning journalist Dahlia Lithwick to discuss what the Constitution means today and how the play has brought it to life. The conversation was recorded on July 28, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. So good evening. Uh, thank you so much for the lovely introduction. Thank you to the 92nd Street Y. I'm sure many of you have thoughts about the Constitution right now, uh, and we'll try to address all of them. And I just want to say what an unbelievable honor uh, it is to be sharing the stage with these two luminaries. I, I wanted to start just by disclosing that when I was first asked to moderate um, this conversation, I was a little nervous. And it's because, you know, Lawrence Tribe comes to this from the, you know, peak of the ivory tower, the most sort of bloodless, dispassionate. He's the guy when you're in law school. We would whisper his name. And then Heidi comes to it from this place of theater and uh, joy and gender and narrative. And I thought to myself, where do these two, where is in the Venn diagram can I find space to talk to these two people? And then I realized everything interesting, both about the play and about what Larry Tribe has done uh, in the resistance in the last couple of years lives in exactly that spot where the two of you intersect. And so I think I wanted just to ask as a, a precatory question to both of you, this is a moment when a lot of people are losing faith, tremendous faith in the Constitution. And maybe we'll start with you, Larry, because you really kind of wear the Constitution. <laughs> it's It's so a part of everything uh, in your veins. And so talk a little bit, even before we start, just to set the table about your own relationship to the US Constitution at this moment. Well, first of all, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Dahlia. Thank you, Heidi. And thank you, 92nd Street Y. And thank all of you. Um, I have spent my life, really, at least my adult life, thinking about studying, teaching, proselytizing, embracing, elaborating, sort of fervently trying to preserve a constitution that I've always known was deeply imperfect, deeply flawed, started out making compromises with slavery, the electoral college sucks, the constitution... <laughs> uh, that, that's the technical legal term. <laughs> I've never thought of it as a flawless document, something to worship and bow down in front of. I've thought of it as a kind of blueprint, a kind of a general framework that comes to life only through those of us who interpret it, enforce it, live it, and make it come to life. It's otherwise quite a dead document, and there are some people who sort of celebrate its being dead rather than living, and I'm not among them. I, I've always thought that it is neither better nor worse than those of us who bring it to life, who march in support of it, who in some cases fight and die to preserve it, to protect it. Uh, and throughout my life, I've seen it come under all kinds of challenges. Challenges at a time when women were not only not mentioned in the text, but essentially erased from all of the Supreme Court jurisprudence that interpreted it when bodily autonomy, bodily integrity, something central to Heidi's work and her play, 
were barely acknowledged in the Constitution. I was just a second year law student when Griswold v. Connecticut was decided. So throughout my life, I've seen the Constitution come under stress, under strain, never, I have to admit, under quite the stress that I think we're all living through now. Not because the Constitution itself has fallen apart, but because the people who we trust to enforce it are really not always the greatest people. I mean, they, they are people whose dedication is less to what the Constitution aspirationally might mean to protect the underprivileged, the unprotected, and more to the Constitution as a kind of conservative document. And in some ways, its history was conservative. I mean, the people who wrote it were fearful of the rabble. They really wanted to protect property and contract and the institutions of government from popular government. And all of the advances made during the Warren years and other years that gradually opened up the Constitution gave it potentially a more affirmative meaning, made it a possible source of protection even against private domestic and other violence began shriveling with the Reagan presidency and the conservatives that he put on the court and the Nixon people and, and on and on. And we are now living through a period when the failure of the Democratic Party to prioritize the identification of young, adventuresome, open-minded humanitarian judges is coming back to haunt us, where the Republicans who made a conservative retrogression of the Constitution central to their political agenda have now watched the fruit of their labors. And we have to fight against it. We have to fight against it politically, legally, through all of the lawsuits we're bringing against Trump, through the impeachment process, by every means available. So that's where I am at the moment. And I, I, I get, yeah. I, I, Heidi, I, I guess I would ask you the same question through a slightly different lens, which is your play is such a spectacular, I don't know what the opposite of a love story is, but it's sort of a falling out of love, or, or at least it's a it's complicated love yes, story. Yes, it's um, sort of a traditional love story. Right, that right, way, I right, think. right. Like, yeah, tragedy. So, girl, meets, yeah. girl meets Ninth Amendment, girl <laughs> loves Ninth Amendment. Um, but, but, Outside the sort of parameters of this very complicated relationship that you in the play, particularly as a woman, for all the reasons Larry's just elucidated, separate from that complexity that you find in your relationship with the Constitution, we're also in a moment uh, where every one of us is thinking all the time about checks and balances yes. and about... Uh, you know, Article, Article One, one yeah. and Article <laughs> Two, and and all the articles. And I guess my question for you is, how much of that is in your head every day when you're on stage telling a story about a slightly different moment? Right. Uh, I mean, I you know, I read the news every day. I know what's happening, so I carry all that uh, in with me to the theater, and the audience does as well. So I think um, while the text of the play doesn't change or the investigation. Uh, I'm doing doesn't change. Um, the different parts of the play seem more vivid on any given night. The audience's reaction changes from night to night depending on what's, what's going on in the news that day. Um, but I will say, I don't, I mean, I, I also think 
my deep questioning of the document, which is what I think of the play. I don't, I don't really, I, I'm not, I, we talked about it a little bit over email. I don't actually consider it a critique. I do consider it a kind of a dialectic, like an investigation of this document. And so I really, I mean, we switch, we have a debate at the end whether or not to abolish the Constitution. We switch sides. My feelings about that changes uh, from, you know, my feelings change from night to night. Um, I just feel like we're all engaged on stage and the audience, uh, the audience as well, and, and just a really deep, engagement with this document and a questioning of it. I, I love the common thread between what the two of you have said. Again, it's that amazing space in the middle of the Venn diagram, which is I think you both feel this urgent need for people to engage with the Constitution. Right. Yes. And, I, that, and that we tend to see it as a kind of, you know, at, at minimum spectator sport, maybe just this oracular right. religious artifact. And I think both of you coming at it, you through Twitter and you through the play, are coming at it in a way. <laughs> I mean, if you're not following Larry Tribe yes, on Twitter, you totally then you should just pull out your phone and do that right now. But it is an amazing thing that I think you're both trying to say that this kind of passive relationship that Americans have with this document or maybe more perniciously this idea that the framers nailed it on the first right. go that has to be wrong right. right right and what I loved so much each time I've seen Heidi's play I've seen it a couple of times but I feel as though I've lived it more than twice first time I saw it was when my 11 year old granddaughter said you know grandpa there's this play that I really think you might want to take us to this was <laughs> this was in December, I think, before it was at the Helen Hayes, when it was off-Broadway. And I said, well, what's it called? She said, what the Constitution means to me. And I had talked to her, I guess, fourth grade class or something about what the Constitution <laughs> meant, and I thought, this would be fun. I mean, I had no idea what it was about. I had barely read about the play. But when I went with my two granddaughters and with my son and his wife to see the play, what I loved was the engagement with the audience. It wasn't... It, it, there was nothing inert about it. The, the play was a dialogue. Even though it was in some ways a monologue, the involvement and engagement of the audience was palpable, and I felt myself sort of merging with that audience. It was, it was a, you know, a pulsating experience. And what I've always loved about teaching constitutional law was that it also is a kind of dialogue. I've never taught it as though, you know, there's this parchment and we have to dissect it and pull apart the threads and the phrases, though you have to learn how to do that if you're going to do well in litigation. But I've always thought of it as something that students could be engaged in, whether they are, you know, Elena Kagan, Barack Obama. I've had the most amazing luck with amazingly interesting students, but many you've never heard of. It was that dialogue, and, and to have that come to life in the theater and then on Broadway, and to have someone with Heidi's sensitivity to it and her talent to do it is, has just been a marvelous experience. And she's picked a, you know, the parts of the Constitution that I love the most. I mean, her love affair with the Ninth Amendment really, <laughs> it's sort of, that's, that's absolute sort of, I don't know what to call it for me, but that's, that's where I live. I live in the parts of the Constitution that aren't written down, that are invisible, that, are, that have capacity for growth. And I've, you know, I've written a book called The Invisible Constitution. That's what I celebrate. The fact that we know it can't all be written down and that we have to give it life and that it's, it's a participatory activity. It's a verb, not a noun. 
Uh, Heidi, that's such a great segue to the question I had for you, which is, you know, this play kind of toggles between your child self, you know, this kind of adorable adolescent uh, who falls in love with this idea that there's a lane for her, there's a conversation, and it comes through the Ninth Amendment and these penumbras and the emanations, and that's really, it, it for you, is your sort of invitation to be in exactly the dialogue that Larry's describing. And then I think, this is spoiler alert, but like it becomes clear there's not really a place, at least for you as a woman, in those penumbras and emanations. And I guess one of the questions that I, I had as I was watching is, do you genuinely feel that you today are not in that conversation or do you feel as though the people who were tasked with figuring out the penumbras, inviting us into the modern era with the Constitution let you down? Uh, that's an incredible question. Let me start with the Ninth Amendment because it really, I really did fall in love with that amendment as a teenage girl. I, you know, I had to prepare every single, every amendment. Well, there were only 26 when I was doing the contest. I had to prepare and learn each one of them. And when I got to the Ninth Amendment, I remember at age, I think I started the contest when I was 14 actually, um, reading the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And after I'd looked up all those words, <laughs> I, uh, I was like, oh, this is telling me that I have rights that are not spelled out in this document. What does that mean? What are those rights? How do I find out? Who, who decides? What could, it, I just found it to be this, um, you know, I was also a kid, I was like into science fiction and witches and magic, so it felt like this, a portal, like opening up into this whole other world of, uh, of, of rights that I didn't know I had. And I also think, you know, I mean, I'm a playwright, so I think, I, I thought of it, just relating that to being a 15-year-old girl, not knowing who I was yet, trying to, you know, imagine my own future, imagine who I might be one day. This, this amendment seemed to provide a space to imagine the future, um, which I think is in fact what it does in the Constitution. So I just became obsessed with that, and then I really became obsessed because of the Ninth Amendment with William O. Douglas, um, who like grew up near my hometown and dated a woman in my grandma's, um, <laughs> near, who lived near my grandma. He dated a lot of women. But uh, <laughs> so I became really obsessed with him and, and the way he talked about the penumbra. Uh, so the penumbra, as you probably, if you've seen the show, know uh, or follow Larry, is uh, <laughs> uh, this, you know, this kind of shadow, essentially. That, that, that the idea was that you could find these unenumerated rights in the penumbra of other rights. So, for example, I learned uh, when I got a little bit older that Griswold versus Connecticut was decided in part by deciding that um, that located in the first, fourth, fifth, and some other amendment was the right to privacy, and that this allowed uh, a married couple to use birth control. Um, anyway, I, I started to learn about uh, just, yeah, just all of the ways that that the court was able to use this idea of unenumerated rights to, um, to gain rights that maybe the founders had, could never have imagined uh, we might need. Yeah. There's one other thing. 
idea about the Ninth Amendment that always kind of spoke to me in a special way. Everything you're saying, I think, is true. I mean, the Ninth Amendment is an invitation. It's a portal. I also loved science fiction, Ursula Le Guin and Ray Bradbury and all that. But apart from that, most of the Constitution sort of doesn't talk to you. Like the First Amendment, very famously, it says, Congress shall make no law. I guess that's talking to Congress. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or Article Two, giving the president all these powers. Not all the ones, of course, that Trump thinks he has. <laughs> the power to do anything, he says. Most of the Constitution sort of is internal. But there's one part, and one part only, that leaps off the page and talks to you, the reader. It's the Ninth Amendment. It says the enumeration of certain rights shall not be construed. Right. What does that mean? It means you, the reader, cannot treat certain things about the Constitution as though they were exclusive. It tells you, it instructs you as the reader, whether you are a judge enforcing it or a teacher teaching about it or a student or a lawyer or an ordinary citizen. It sort of tells you how to read the thing. There's nothing else in there that gives you reading instructions. Right. And of course, the reading instructions themselves have to be interpreted. And there's a lot of debate about how to read the reading instruction right. of the Ninth Amendment. But the very fact that it leaps off the page and started talking to me, I thought, well, I can talk back. Yes. And that's an empowering thing, quite apart from the, the content of the Ninth Amendment. Right. It's sort of its syntax. It is invitation to a dialogue. It right. is invitation right. to, right. yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, Larry, I guess this is the only doctrine question I'm going to ask. And then I'm going to go back and amend my con law, too, with Ka Kathleen Sullivan exam that I did poorly on. Um, she but was also one of my favorite I know students. she was one of your students. <laughs> right. um, I did not do well in her class, uh, full disclosure. <laughs> but I, I guess what you and Heidi are talking about right now seems like it maps almost flawlessly onto this very, I think, cartoonish public debate we're having about strict construction, originalism, textualism, and I don't know what, you know, you can call it living constitutionalism. I think Justice Scalia would call it interpretive dance, like he doesn't <laughs> like any of, of the sort of living constitutional theories. And I guess my question for you is, is what Heidi's doing here, and both of your view, trying to make that a more nuanced discussion than the, I think, very, very, you know, I've sat through I don't know how many Judiciary Committee uh, uh, hearings for, for justices, and I find that when we get to the moment where they say, what does a judge do, and they start doing the strict construction, you know, Ouija board, we talk to the framers, and that's what we do, you know, what would James Madison do, wait, and I find that so <laughs> trivial, right. and it seems as though one of the things that you're both talking about now is trying to make that complicated, because it is complicated, right? Right, right. I mean, it's the idea that you could either engage in kind of middle dialogue with James Madison. I mean, all of that is... That's also science fiction. Yeah, yeah science fiction. <laughs> I mean, at one point there was... A, even Alito made fun of Scalia about right. that in one case that involved um, sort of... I think it was video games, violent video games, yeah. and Madison... Uh, uh, Madison... Alito asked 
the lawyer. He said, I think what Justice Scalia wants to know is what would James Madison have thought of violent video right. games? Yeah. But of course, not even Scalia was interested in channeling what Madison would have <laughs> right. thought. He was talking, to be fair, about the original meaning of these words. The trouble is they had numerous original meanings. Right. They meant different things to different people, different framers, different ratifiers. They meant things to their proponents and things to their opponents. What they mean today is the issue. And I think the wonderful thing about Heidi's play is she makes it clear that that's the issue that everyone is grappling with. So that whether you are a so-called originalist or not, the questions are still deep ones. I mean, what is the meaning of the right to bear arms? It, by the time the 14th Amendment was ratified in the 1860s, the right to bear arms definitely did have something to do with the right of formerly enslaved people to protect themselves with firearms when the cops wouldn't protect them. And so even if originally perhaps it meant only something about the militias, the meaning has evolved in various ways. There's no way even of asking what something meant in 1787 without having a deep debate about the ambiguity of history. So that both the majority and the dissent in the famous case that activated the Second Amendment and created all kinds of problems for the present, they both were interpreting what it meant in 1787 and how that might or might not have changed in 1868. And they obviously came to different answers to that question. So a play like Heidi's enables you to see how shallow and trivial and caricatured the usual structure of the debate really is. So it's a, it's a sophisticated, advanced con law course on Broadway. Right. Pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and Heidi, I was going to ask you, because I was so aware, sitting in the audience, of how Justice Scalia yes. hovers over your play. And of course, he is, you know, if you had a sort of, you had to, to, to distill everything that is fascinating about the court, Justice Scalia, rep, you know, such yes. a huge operatic personality. But he also, you know, in addition to sort of representing this originalist, textualist, very, very crabbed view of what the framers thought. He also, to you, I mean, quite starkly represents an opinion in a 2005 case in yes. which a woman is not entitled to relief uh, when the police fail to, to protect her uh, and there's an existing you know, TRO against her husband, her children are, are killed and, and Scalia lets her down. Yes. And I wondered again, a version of the question I just asked Larry, which is he looms so large as I think a metaphor for the ways in which if you read the constitution the way he does, there's no place for the messy life yes. you describe, right? Yes. I think if, personally, I think if you read the Constitution, the way he read it, there's no place for a lot of us, actually. Um, and to continue the discussion of the Ninth Amendment, the thing I discovered while creating the play over a decade is that this amendment that I loved so much, that maybe one reason I loved it is because it was the only way my personhood, my body, got included in the Constitution. And that because my body was left out of the Constitution from the beginning, nobody cared about it, cared to protect it, cared to give me bodily integrity, cared to give me rights, um, or the right to vote, um, that they, they had to go in. I, I was given rights by virtue of this 
of the Ninth Amendment at first, but because you know uh, Roe v. Wade was decided also was rooted in the right to privacy, I believe that the right to abortion being rooted in bodily integrity did not happen until Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So, so my right to bodily autonomy in this country did not happen until 1992 when I was 21 years old, which seems absurd to me. Um, and so I, I sort of learned that this this amendment, I revered and was fascinated by had, had gained me a, a, some rights in this constitution, but also that they had to use this thing because they just, as I say in the play, they, they had no other way to deal with, with someone like me because I had been left out. And I, as I began researching that more and more, I just, I became very disillusioned with the way um, I had been left out of the Constitution, and so many other people had been left out of the Constitution. And I will say that Scalia is also the person, and I thank him for this, who very clearly stated the Constitution does not prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, and he is right, it does not. Which is why I think we need an Equal Rights Amendment. <laughs> And personally, I'm in favor of an expanded Equal Rights Amendment that covers sexual orientation, gender expression, gender identification, age, ability, disability. Um, but anyway, I, uh, he, for me, represents um, the way adhering to a document that, as uh, Professor Tribe said, was, was deeply flawed from the beginning, was meant to protect only a certain group of people and their property. Uh, adhering to those to that notion of what the Constitution should be is, um, is uh, not only excludes so many of us, but actually endangers many people's lives. Um, which is why now I make a joke in the play where I say, you know, Scalia was quoted as saying he didn't remember studying the Ninth Amendment in law school and that he could not tell you what it meant if his life depended on it. And I say that makes sense because his life didn't depend on it. Right. Mm. Right. But many other of our lives actually do. Like, yeah. Let me um, just build on that a, a little bit. What's interesting to me is not only were women in some ways left out in bodily integrity, it's like everybody's bodily integrity. In, in the case that you're talking about, it was the woman whose ability to get a restraining order to pre prevent her ex-husband, I guess it was, from yeah. killing their three children fell through the cracks partly because the idea was the Constitution protects you from the government, but it doesn't give you rights against the government to demand that the government protect you against private violence. In a case that that built on, a case involving a kid named Joshua who was beaten to a pulp by his father while the social workers of the city looked on and kept good records but did nothing to protect poor Joshua, in that case, it was the little boy who was not protected by the Constitution. Not because boys aren't protected. Right. The point is that everybody is protected only in this narrow, limited way by a reading of the Constitution that takes very literally and narrowly the language that says that the state cannot deprive you of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, or the state cannot deny you right. equal protection. But what does equal protection of the laws mean if it's not affirmative protection of the laws from all kinds of violence, right. private as, as well as public? And so the one place where I'm not sure we wholly agree is when you say the Constitution doesn't protect you now, 
or it doesn't protect women or gays or lesbians and so on. Well, it does in a way. That's, the Equal Protection Clause is broad enough to do that. It's only a kind of constipated, sick, narrow, <laughs> pathetic reading of it that right. says that because it doesn't mention trans people or bisexuals uh, or vulnerable little kids that somehow it doesn't protect them. It does. I, I, I actually agree with that. I believe the Equal Protection Clause is a beautiful clause. And if it were interpreted uh, right way. You know, right. in the right way, it would work. But clearly it's not working. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, if, if, these, if conservative justices are going to take the letter of the Constitution so seriously, then we should give them the language so that right. they can't... Uh, you know, they're very clever. They like can they... screw around with whatever language you <laughs> I mean, take, take the language of the Equal Rights Amendment, that the rights of people should not be denied on account of sex. These guys said in an earlier case that a discrimination against pregnant women yeah. is not on account of sex. It's on account of pregnant persons. Right. And there are pregnant women and non-pregnant women. Right. Therefore, it's not a sex classification. I mean, you shouldn't underestimate the perversity right. of the legal mind. Well, I believe the expanded Equal Rights Amendment actually does list pregnancy as a right. protected class. I, I, I mean, I guess, I guess I also don't understand like the arguments against the Equal Rights Amendment. I don't understand. I don't understand them. I don't understand what harm it would do. It certainly seems like it might do yeah. a lot of good. Um, I, I do think, you know, 179 constitutions have gender protections specifically written right. into them. Like, why wouldn't we have it? Also, most people apparently think we already have it. Yeah. Um, well, and yeah. constitutions that include the right to dignity. Yes. I mean, I think that there yes. are, you right. know, there are problems with having a centuries-old document. Yes. And we revere it, but we don't realize that every constitution that uh, has happened subsequently has in some ways added, you know, things that now are, again, what, we don't protect the right to dignity in the US Constitution? Of course we don't, we can't even define it. I, I just wanna ask you one question, because I think what you're both talking about is not flaws with the document, you're talking about flaws with the people who interpret mm -hmm. the document. And I think, you know, and I think, I, I had mentioned to Heidi um, when I saw the show <laughs> that this framing question at the end, which is so brilliant because everybody suddenly is in the conversation and everybody's got a constitution in their hand and they're trying to figure out, should we do away with the thing? But you're identifying a different problem. It's not the problem of the constitution, it's a problem of power and who has yes. the authority. And if we were still in the Warren Court era and you know, the equal uh, you know, uh, uh, rights protections and the due process protections and all of the gorgeous flowering rights uh, that were afforded in that time, we would not be talking about a constipated constitution. We would be talking about all the ways that it has moved with us into right. this new century. It's except, so I mean, in a, in a way, we can be thankful that some of the underlying structural flaws, which are real and which are there, have come to the surface. I mean, for a long time, we didn't worry that much about the Electoral College because it came out the same way as the popular vote. And then suddenly we get things like 2000 and you know the subsequent developments in 2016 <laughs> um, and maybe 2020 and then we see that there was this time bomb in the in the way it was designed to begin with or the right. structure of the senate or the fact i mean some of it isn't even hardwired in the constitution the very fact for example that the house of representatives still has only 435 members 
which is the number it had when the population of the country was vastly less. One of my colleagues, Danielle Allen, has proposed expanding it by 50, which would not take any constitutional amendment and which would dilute the malapportionment and some of the problems of gerrymandering considerably. Mm -hmm. There are a number of things that could be done within the framework right. that will make it less dysfunctional. And then there are other things that really would require structural change, like getting rid of the electoral college, although there is a national popular vote compact mm -hmm. that if enough states would sign on to it might be a workaround from, for the electoral college. Uh, Heidi, can I, yes. <laughs> can I ask you, um, you, you describe, now we're, we're in the world of living constitutionalism and then within that world, you describe the play as this kind of living inquiry into your own relationship with the Constitution, and, and you know, you take different sides in the debate, uh, eight yes. shows a week, so yes. you're t going back and forth. Um, but you have said that your own view of the Constitution has really changed, and that, in fact, Larry Tribe helped you think differently. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the kinds of conversations you've had with people sure. while the show has been evolving have yes. affected the way you think about it now? Yes, I mean, I, first of all, I mean, one of the incredible things about performing the show in such a public way is I get to meet people like Larry uh, and you, uh, who very kindly will teach me things that I don't already know, or maybe I just, I begin, I, I've, I've been able to interact with people who know much more than I do about the Constitution. So I've been able to bring my questions directly to people like Larry without having to go to Harvard, which is very exciting. <laughs> I um, so, I mean, it's, it's twofold. Like, both my thinking about it has evolved and changed, and also I've just learned, I've learned things. Um, I, there's so many things, I don't know if I can go into them, but I, I will say this, that I... Uh, I do, depending on any given night, whether I'm arguing to keep or abolish the Constitution, and I suppose this is a little scary, will leave believing whatever side I argued. <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> which is a little scary, but I think um, just having to invest in each possibility so deeply makes me see that side for a moment in a very you know, makes me experience it in a visceral way. Um, but that's why I say the play is an investigation and a dialectic, because I feel like those things are, I mean, look, I don't think there's, the reality of abolishing the Constitution is a thing that can or should happen. So it's putting those ideas in tension that, in, that allows me to think more deeply about the document and also where we are as a country. And I will say this, that the thing I, I struggle with, and I think the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, just arguing to abolish, and I will also say that lately people have been voting to abolish a lot more. Like we just had three abolishes in a row, which suggests that people are feeling very, like they want a big change. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think the thing I've, been thinking about deeply is to build on what you said about the Equal Protection Clause. <clears throat> yes, it's true. The, the way um, the government's obligation to us is so narrowly defined, like the fact that the government is not sort of explicitly expected to protect us from private violence affects everyone. It affects 
men, it affects you no matter what your gender expression is. Um, but because women and um, women identifying people and people who are not cis men are so much more likely to be targeted, yeah. to be targets of violence, it actually ends up deepening the inequality in right. this country. Mm -hmm. So yes, it affects everyone, but how, and this is the thing I've been thinking about a lot, like in order to have equality, for me to consider myself equal in this country, I need to have bodily integrity and I need not to be subject to epidemic levels of violence, which is what in fact is going on with women and many other populations in this country. Right, I, yeah. mean, I think one of the deep insights in, in what you're saying, Heidi, is that this mirage of neutrality, that you know, the government is even-handed, it doesn't help, it doesn't help vulnerable, women, it doesn't help vulnerable, multi-billionaire men. Um, <laughs> it's like, you know, the majestic equality of French law that forbids rich and poor alike mm. to beg in the streets and sleep under the bridges of Paris. <laughs> you know, the neutrality is an illusion right. that is given the inequality of wealth, power, a system that is merely neutral and a court that says, oh, we're just umpires and call balls and strikes is fundamentally playing a rigged game, rigged against those who are relatively powerless and effectively reinforces their powerlessness. And I think that's a very important thing that one learns in dialogue with, with the Constitution. It, it's, it goes to, Heidi, Heidi makes this nice observation in the play that for me sort of was like being hit in the head with a bag of cement about how we all live this double life. And, you know, in your case, you're talking about, you know, this sort of childhood posture where you're, you know, rapturous about uh, the Ninth Amendment, except that there's all this, you know, violence in your own life. And, and Larry, I think with you, there's a version of the same thing, which is you have devoted your entire career to this principle that this document is a lodestar that we, you know, better to have institutions that do this than not, mm -hmm. and that you're out there on the ramparts fighting for the Constitution every day with the understanding that institutions are crumbling uh, underneath us. Right. I mean, the courts are falling apart and the rule of law, what we define as these central institutions that are meant to shore up this right. thing are, are uh, really kind of washing away. And I guess I want to ask each of you, um, about this double, double life we live, uh, where we are going to continue to fight for these institutions, and also that there will be a point at which they're not working to help us anymore. Right, we're not working enough. I mean, it's not, the it's, it's as though the institutions look okay. I mean, the guardrails might hold, courts might, you know, if, if courts directly order Trump to do certain things, he might actually do them, like the census. I really think that the citizenship question will not be included in the census because that's what the Supreme Court said. But even as we win, we may lose because he's so terrified people who are in marginalized communities, they are already discouraged from filling out the census anyway as though there were a citizenship question. So the institutions hold, the guardrails hold, but the norms are crumbling. The soft underbelly of things, 
because we have such a sort of a monstrous presence in the White House. Yeah. Uh, from the president to Commander Pence, I think of him that way <laughs> after, watching, you know, after watching the Hulu and uh, HBO versions of, of The Handmaid's Tale. It, it, it's, the, it's these people who are in power that are letting us down. Yeah. And the institutions may hold, and yet if the norms are gone, it may take us generations to rebuild them. That's the scariest part. Heidi, I want to ask you this question because it's the first audience question and it was also the question I didn't get to, which is okay. fortuitous. Um, you've chosen to debate with high school yes. uh, students in the, in the closing sort of section of the play. And I have noticed, I have to say, uh, probably for me the most interesting interviews I did this year were with the Parkland kids, who yeah. are, I want to be them when I grow up. Yeah. Um, and and uh, it's clear to me that you're finding hope in young people. And I guess the question is written is, is a, a subtler version of the question that I was going to ask, but the question is, how are young people going to find hope uh, in this government that doesn't represent them, in this document where they don't see themselves? And right. it feels to me that that that's your takeaway, right? I mean, I think my takeaway is, first of all, um, I've had the same experience. We've auditioned many debaters. I've done the play in other cities. I did it in Berkeley. And every time I interact with these young debaters, I have such hope for our country. They are so smart and they are so passionate about our country and about um, moving us to a better place that I, feel very excited by that. Um, I will also say that I, I think, I do think that the answer is we, we do have to save ourselves by engaging with our democracy. And one thing, when you asked me earlier, one thing I learned from Larry, that incredible essay you gave me to read about like the founders of this country and the founders of the Constitution aren't just the original men who wrote it, it's all of us. It's all the people who came along and uh, fought and died to change <laughs> the Constitution, fought and died to change the way our laws work, and we can be founders too, actually, by engaging. And I feel like the at least one of the young debaters I work with every night is, has her eyes set on Congress and or maybe the Supreme Court, and that makes me feel really happy. And I feel, yeah, and I feel also that... Um, you know, I just watched the documentary about AOC and the, and the other Justice Democrats and the thing she said, you know, it, it takes a hundred of us doing this for one of us to get through, uh, gave me actually a lot of energy. I'm tired out from doing my show and I was like, well, I can go do my show again. Like, if, uh, <laughs> if these folks are out there doing the hard work of keeping our democracy alive, which I really feel they are, um, then I... I, I do think there's hope. I, I think there's hope if, if we are willing to do the work of democracy. And Larry, I'm going to ask you the same question through a slightly different prism um, because uh, someone in the audience makes the very good point that people have no idea what is in the Constitution. Uh, and, you know, this is Sandra Day O'Connor likes to say, you know, we can name more judges on Dancing with the Stars than we can uh, <laughs> name on, you know, the Supreme Court. And that's not a punchline. That's, in fact, true. Um, and, and the question uh, has to do with civics and school. Right. But 
are we failing our young people because we're not doing the thing that Heidi's play is doing, which is inviting them into this discourse with yeah. their governing document? The answer is yes. Yes. I mean, clearly, public education needs to be dramatically beefed up. We need much more attention, much more sort of financial investment. We need teachers' salaries to go up in a dramatic way so that, you know, so that, I mean, nothing could be a more exciting or important resource than, than the generation that is so inspiring to Heidi and to me. And to really let them languish, not teach them the most fundamental things, not just the, the words of the Constitution, but, you know, why it matters, what the whole idea of a Constitution is about. What do we mean by checks and balances? Why do we worry? I mean, a lot of people think, you know, a strongman government isn't so bad, might give us security, freedom is pretty scary sometimes. People need to understand what the stakes are of a society run by, you know, Big Brother, in which you really aren't free anymore, in which you don't have agency, in which your life is not yours to lead. And that's really where we're heading. I mean, it's not funny to think in terms of The Handmaid's Tale and what it portends. Tyranny happens by the slow drip, drip process that we are now witnessing. And how can we resist it if we don't bother to teach children the history of how other countries have fallen apart, how they have fallen into the hands of, of tyrants, and how our Constitution at least has the, the means, if we would but use them, uh, to resist that. And one of those means, and the reason I've put so much energy into it, is the impeachment power. I mean, it may not work. We may not succeed in removing him. But the idea that we should say, oh, well, because we are not likely to remove him, we should just move on and talk only about bread and butter issues is crazy. Uh, and that's why... I, That's why I'm, I'm so glad that we are now finally, formally, in the process of an impeachment inquiry, yeah. as of last Friday. Yeah. Um, there's a question here about the politicization of the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Larry's heard me say before, you know, I carbon date my nervous breakdown to the Merrick Garland, you know, to that. That's when it started for me, because for me, and it goes to the soft norms you're describing, there was nothing to be done other than submit and acquiesce. Um, but, you know, Heidi's play comes out in the middle of the, the, you know, the Kavanaugh hearings begin to really profoundly, I think, change the relationship that the public has uh, with the court. And so either of you can answer this, but the court has probably, I think, and, and I, I'm sure some folks would date this to Bork, and some folks would date it to, you know, the Anthony Kennedy getting Bork's seat, and you can date it to Garland as I do, but if the court is broken, or if the public believes that the court is fundamentally broken, is there any coming back from that? Well, a couple of things. First of all, the court is more broken than it's ever been. We've, ne we've, we've had courts that have been ideologically riven before with a lot of 5-4 divisions between conservatives and liberals and so on, but we have never before had a situation with five people on the right, all named by 
presidents of one political party and five on the left named by presidents of the other political party. I mean, it's five Republicans, five Democrats, four, you know, four Democrats. And it is true that, that Roberts, given his desire that the court not go down the drain completely, is trying very hard to, you know, to tack and to not, you know, try to prevent it from being too conspicuously right-wing too often. But it's happening, and it's going to happen even more. And when you look at the ages of Ruth Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer, and the fact that no matter what we do, the odds that Trump will be reelected are not so shabby. It's scary. So assume that the court is gone, that it's not a bulwark. I hope it doesn't happen, but assume that we can't look to it for much protection. It doesn't mean we can't look to state courts. There are things they can do. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court struck down under their constitution the gerrymander in that case. When the U.S. Supreme Court said that school funding can't really be corrected by the U.S. Supreme Court, state Supreme Courts in California, Michigan, Texas, other places stepped up to the plate. So federalism might end up having a progressive face for a change. <laughs> Some of the cities are pushing back as sanctuary right. cities, right. and they've succeeded sometimes in preventing the federal government from basically shoving stuff down their throats. And popular initiatives and referenda have gotten a certain distance. And just as Heidi says, I mean, the framers were not just the you know, white, slave-owning, property-owning old guys who were around in the 1780s. The framers were people who marched and died in the civil rights movement. The framers are us. Yeah. And so we are actively engaged in a process that the Supreme Court may not always be there to rescue us from, but, but we have power independent of the court. And, and Heidi, do you, did, did, how much did the, again, the sort of specter of the Kavanaugh hearings hang over, you know, in last fall when it was changing the way we were all thinking, not just about the court, but about gender and power and privilege and what it means to come forward. Was that inflecting on what you were thinking? Uh, it, so I had performed a version of the play pretty much intact about five years ago, mm -hmm. and it it ha the content of it hasn't changed. So I didn't change the play in any, in any way. I was the play was already running when the hearings happened. Uh, what did change was just what people were bringing into the right. theater and what I was bringing into the theater. And I, I know that I had so much uh, rage during those hearings and a lot of grief, and I found them... Uh, like 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 many people, I just I found it pretty uh, overwhelming, and that feeling was present in the theater. Um, so I, I don't know how to describe it except to say like it's a play, it's a piece of theater, and and the subtext on those nights was very charged, and people uh, responding very emotionally in the audience while that was happening. They also voted to abolish basically every night. <laughs> but there's a lot in common between the play as Heidi is now describing it and a lot of Shakespeare's plays as people like Stephen Greenblatt describe them. In, he's got a book called Tyrant, Shakespeare on Politics and a, a number of other books in which he describes how Shakespeare was criticizing what was going on in Elizabethan England 
but because it was a capital offense to literally criticize or sort of threaten the viability of the, of the sovereign, it all had to be done by metaphorical reference to Denmark or you know, some other place, some other century, some other time. And the curtain only rarely came apart. And in a way, the play, though, as Heidi describes it, really hasn't changed in its text. But the context, the subtext, the messages, how it connects with life, that's the living part of the play. And that's, the play is indirectly a critique of, you know, it doesn't say a word about the Kavanaugh hearings, yeah. but the outrageousness of those hearings is somehow criticized by the play if you see it at the time those hearings are going on. Yeah. Well, I think because the play is a, an, a critique and an investigation of, you know, 230 years of something, right, all, right. all of those things are, are present without me having to name anyone's name. And I specifically don't like to say one person's name ever in the theater. Um, it's funny because when I saw the play, I wrote to Heidi the next day that I had been in the Senate during the Kavanaugh hearings with my shoulders rucked up to my ears. And a lot of the women journalists around me were having a kind of physical visceral response that I think I didn't fully understand until I saw the play, which was months later. But I do think exactly what you're saying, Larry, which is that you're kind of excavating a space for us to think about how we feel about that in a way that um, wasn't anticipated. You, you will not be surprised at all, Heidi, to know that I have four questions about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> I'm quite surprised there's only four. Um, I could say Ruth Bader Ginsburg, colon, discuss, um, <laughs> but I think folks want to know what it was like when she came to the show. It was really, uh, I don't even know how to begin. There was a lot of weeping. Uh, Thursday Williams, uh, our 18-year-old debater, carry, her whole dressing room was decorated with RBG paraphernalia, and she carries an RBG pencil on stage with her when she debates. And she didn't know RBG was there until we went off stage. We told her, and then she just collapsed to the ground and, <laughs> and was, like, sobbing. And then we all went back and met her. She, uh, she was in incredible. She... She looked very healthy. She, uh, yeah, she did. We all, our, uh, one of our actors, Mike Iveson, made sure to wash his hands so he wouldn't get uh, uh, And then she said, she was lovely. She said that the play gave her hope and then she repeated uh, something that Thurgood Marshall had said, which is that, you know, he didn't love the document the original mm -hmm. document, and that it has, it in fact took several amendments, a civil war, an entire civil rights movement where people died in order to um, make the document live up to the ideals that were being professed mm -hmm. in the beginning, but that he loved that work that had gone into it and that he loved um, the thing it had begun to embody. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that very... I found it hopeful. I say that I have a very like um, my I have a very tempered sense of hope. Yeah, mm. Larry, you talked about Shakespeare, and I I was thinking this morning that one of the things I think both of you are trying to do in your relationship 
to the law and the Constitution is closer to maybe biblical prophecy, um, which, which is, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm just reflecting back, you know, on Heidi talking about RBG and the ways in which we tend to say, you know, she'll fix it. You know, I don't have to engage because she's there, you know, in her four-inch heels uh, and her funny lacy gloves fixing the world. And I think both of you actually reject kind of the idea of hagiography or passivity. Yes. I think that the whole Mueller will save us, RBG will save us, whoever the person AOC will save us. I think both of you are actually living refutation of the idea that some other person will save us. Each of you, you do it on Twitter more than anyone I know. Um, <laughs> but, but Heidi does it in the play. I mean, yeah. she's handing out constitutions. And I wonder if you could, um, just in the, in the few minutes we have left, talk a little bit about whether you have a sense that people um, come away from those conversations with each of you and say, I understand, I have to own this converse, this constitution, or if they just say, oh, I met Larry Tribe. Oh my God, I met Heidi Shrek. I can't believe. Are, are people understanding the thing that you're saying, which is stop putting all your faith in a court or a constitution or a, a figure and put faith in yourself? Are we too far gone to understand that? I don't think so. I mean, I certainly don't. I feel after the play, I mean, I've had the remarkable fortune of meeting so many people after the play, and people write to me, and, and young people. I had a young 13-year-old write to me really wanting to discuss penumbras, and she wants to go into law now, and I feel like um, there's something about the... Con I, I don't, I, I'm not saying this is because of my play, but what I'm getting the sense of is that there are tremendous amounts of people who are ready to engage and try to... Um, make this country a better, more humane place. And there are a lot of young people who are incredibly engaged and know much more than I did at their age about what we need to do. I, that's been my feeling performing the show. That's, yeah. Yeah. Well, my main way of encountering people generally is through Twitter. I mean, I didn't do any social media until <laughs> relatively recently. But I get, you know, every imaginable kind of feedback Lots of hate mail, you know, <laughs> lots of violent, nasty, obscene stuff. But on the whole, people indicating that they're made more hopeful by the fact that there aren't any absolute clear answers, that it's a struggle, that they are part of the struggle, and that it's an interactive process. I mean, I may be fooling myself, but I get the sense that it makes a difference and that people out there are excited and are excited to be engaged in a process whose you know, who's end point is unknown, but it depends on us. I also think there's something about, I think the problem with the, the reverence for the document is like, I, I, I think many of us grew up revering it and then never really read it or knew what's in it. So you think like, oh, it's this perfect document that will make, that will keep us all safe and make sure everything's okay and I don't have to do anything. Right, right. <laughs> um, that to me seems like the mm -hmm. danger of revering it. Um, and I think one of the like one of the reasons we pass out the constitutions is is to say like this is yours. You can 
you could change it if you want. I mean, the 27th Amendment got passed because some guy wrote a college paper about it and he got a right. C on it and then decided he was gonna prove everybody wrong by getting it passed. I mean, you could, right, I'm, I'm, that's reductive, but. <laughs> <laughs> But like, it's close to true, though. It's close yeah. to true. Uh, we are capable of shaping this document if we want to. We are capable of shaping this country if we want to. Um, right. Yeah. And, and there is no sort of, there's no pope of the Constitution. There's right. no authoritative top dog that tells us what it means. The Supreme Court, as Justice Jackson once said, is not final because it's infallible. It's just treated as infallible because it's final. And it's not even all that final, right. you know, because its decisions can be overturned by amendment and by, you know, Dred Scott was overturned by the Civil War and by the Civil War amendments and Plessy v. Ferguson was overturned by Brown v. Board and hopefully Roe v. Wade won't be overturned, <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's pretty iffy. But the main point is it, it, it's something that we are sort of part of bringing to life all the time. And it's not as though there's some one authority that has the last word and then that's the end of it. Can I, can I yes. say one last thing building on that? So I've also, I've become friends with Jessica Lenahan, the woman I talk about in the play who, um, whose children were killed and you know the Supreme Court, the decision led by Scalia said she was not entitled to protection from the police. She couldn't sue the police department. And uh, one of the things she said to me, you know, she took her case all the way to the Inter-American Human it's Rights Commission. the town Commission. of Castle Rock? Castle Rock, oh, yeah, wow. Gonzalez versus Castle Rock. When the Supreme Court said she could not sue the police, she went to the Inter-American Human Rights Commission right. and they said the United States of America violated violation. the rights of Jessica Lenahan. And she said that, the reason she did that, she said she asked her lawyer, she said, my mom says um, everybody has a boss who's the boss of the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> and so she ended up going to the uh, Inter-American Human Rights Commission, but we were having a conversation the other day and we were talking about the idea that like, like everybody does Everybody does have a boss, and the fact is, like, we are the bosses right. of this country. We actually are, but it's hard to wrap our minds around that. Um, yeah. I'm yeah. glad you've gotten to know her. I, that's yeah, amazing. yeah. Amazing. You know, it wasn't just Scalia. Even a guy like Justice Souter, yes. moderate, sort of liberal guy, he was on what I regard as the wrong side of that one, too. Yeah. I'm going to... Um pull the plug only because I'm, I'm getting the pull the plug um, time signal. But I, I, I think, <laughs> let, me, let me try to say again um, the thing about biblical prophecy because um, nobody ever says like, oh, that second Samuel, he saved us. What they say is that second Samuel like stood there and hollered into the wind until people saved themselves. And I think that for me, it's a really useful model for all the reasons you've just described of why this work that you are both doing of telling people you're the boss of the Constitution, you're the boss of being morally and ethically serious in this moment, that is truly, I think, uh, the most significant and compelling work. And I think, looking at it, an audience with some little people in it, I think it is what, um, if something is going to get us out the other end, it's that. So please join me in thanking Larry and Heidi. <laughs> Thanks for listening. 
Nine2Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.